This show is part of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To join our community Discord or see more content from our members, visit darkmorepodcasts.com. Hello, everyone. I'm John. And this is Stephanie. And welcome to Borrowing Brilliance, a new segment of Dragon Mind. In this segment, we borrow brilliance from some of the world's most insightful minds using their ideas to better ourselves as game masters, players, and people. In today's episode, Stephanie and I bring on our martial arts teacher and business mentor, Ken Caputo, who also partners with Stephanie in their consulting company, Momentum Learning Systems. We discuss five-level leadership, a framework which we implement at our martial arts school and that you can utilize at your table and in your life. If you have any insights or questions, be sure to head over to the Darkmore Podcast Community Discord and let us know in the proper channels. To support this podcast, drop a five-star review in your podcasting app of choice. It's a little thing that goes a long way in helping us help as many RPG tables discover their best game possible. So without further ado, let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Dragon Mind. Um, today we're doing a special borrowing brilliance. Not only am I joined by Stephanie. Uh, Stephanie, how are you doing this morning? I'm awesome. We're also joined by Ken, who we've previously had on the podcast before from Momentum Learning Systems, which is what we're talking about today. So, Ken, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Two very good synonyms for the same general state. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So how about we just jump right into it? So, Ken, we kind of teased this at the end of our five animals discussion the first time I had you on for the podcast where we talked about how you were involved with momentum learning systems. So we didn't have Stephanie for that conversation, but both of you have a role to play in that. So can you describe for us what momentum learning systems is and how it came about? Sure. So it started mainly from the premise uh, with, with our martial arts background and teaching martial arts as, as we started to delve further into not so much teaching, but learning how people learn, one of the things that just really struck me as being interesting is this kind of long-term tradition in the martial arts where the longer you do it, the harder it's supposed to get. And it's like you make it very, very difficult for someone to, say, achieve a black belt. And what felt a little bit less than necessary was to create that much resistance. So, you know, it's, so think of it this way, in a lot of martial arts, you learn a kata, which is like a a memorized sequence of movements. And the hardest thing to do is learn the first kata. It's learning how to learn. And our idea was over time, as you get more familiar with something, you should be able to gain momentum. The process of learning itself should get easier. And yes, it requires more effort, as things get more complex, but how do we reinvent the design of learning? So it was something that, you know, basically what we called a free learning environment, F-R-E-E, making it fun, rewarding, engaging, and energizing. So, you know, so we started playing with this and over a couple of decades, we studied a lot of learning principles, a lot of things from different modalities that would influence that. And and it evolved into a system of being able to teach someone how to teach something that they were proficient at 
And then it kind of evolved from there into a hero's story model, where part of what we do with that consulting company is we help people not only organize their content, but really connect to the people who are going to be utilizing their service and seeing it through their eyes and putting them at the center so that they become the hero of the story that's being told. So there's a lot of dimensions of it that have evolved over the years. Now, Momentum Learning Systems is a company owned by you and Stephanie. So what are both of your roles within the company? Momentum Learning was founded by both Ken and I. We've been working together for years in a variety of different ways through the martial arts school and then through Quester's Way. Momentum Learning Systems kind of evolved in parallel to that with Ken as the visionary behind a lot of the ideas and I'm more the integrator side. So you could think CEO and COO, chief operations officer, uh, or the the way our teacher John Fritz would always say it is I'm the string on the balloon. So Ken has all the the amazing ideas that that truly, you know, can change the world, make it a better place. Uh, but someone needs to bring it back down to earth and make sure that the website gets built and the manuals get printed and the T's get crossed and the I's get dotted. So that's how we kind of work together. And it's evolved into a, a synergistic relationship. Um, so there's influence, you know, in both directions. So so Ken supports the nuts and bolts. I support the vision. Um, but we kind of also both have our lanes that we know is our individual zones of genius and they just complement each other really well. So you've already kind of teased that even though Momentum Learning System started from the martial arts school, the the scope is much broader than that. So just so some of our listeners may be able to conceptualize just how adaptable Momentum Learning Systems is, uh, what are some examples of how you've applied Momentum Learning Systems to some different environments? A couple of examples. So we've been working with a lot of organizations, um, especially not-for-profits. You know, they have a, a, a mission that they need to accomplish. And what we help them focus on is the human element. And we actually do interactive presentations and workshops for groups. I did one about a week ago for about 80 uh, employees and just helping them understand their own strengths and the way that they view their um their role in the company and in understanding their strengths, they also understand each other's strengths and they learn to kind of connect. So what happens is the greater your understanding of yourself and each other is, the deeper those connections come. And that leads to this whole flywheel of evolution, both personally and professionally. So we work with groups like that. And then we also work with um, content uh, contributors. Like there's a gentleman right now who has this program called Harmonetics. And he's been doing this for 40 years and he's been doing it all by himself. And he really wants to scale his impact. So we're helping him rethink and reinvent his contribution in a way where he can train other people to do it and he can build it into an actual company with employees. Uh, he has an opportunity right now. We're working on uh, helping about a quarter million veterans in greater New York City um, with their needs through his program. So we're working with people right now. I'm connected to several communities that are doing things like that globally. So we're working with people in Australia and 
Scotland and England. And it's really cool because there are a lot of people who, you know, they have value they want to contribute, um, but they're a little unclear in how to do that consistently and scale it. So a lot of what we do is we help them think that through and organize it in a way where, you know, their value is clear, their contribution is scalable, and it will outlive them. You know, it becomes a multi-generational contribution. So that's kind of what we're focused on right now. And on the local level of how we've used momentum learning systems within our own businesses, so the Questers Wave Center had it had an indoor play park and a healthy foods cafe, but really the core behind it were the educational programs. So we taught instructors on or teachers how to teach in multiple different areas. So we had messy science classes and breakdancing classes and Dungeons and Dragons, which is part of where, you know, all of this ended up birthing from. Uh, but they all taught using momentum learning. So this system has been overlaid. It's basically a way that you can construct your material, uh, whether it's in a classroom or in a podcast, or in an online course, uh, or even the way you construct a D&D adventure. Uh, it, it's, it creates a momentum learning experience, a closed loop experience within the, the class or the course or the session. So it's, it's a, a way that you can put together curriculum so that the learner hears it and absorbs it. And it also created the ability for our students that would come into the center to have a predictable learning experience. So whether they were doing a topic that they had experience with or they were were entering into a new activity with a new teacher that they'd never met before, they could trust that the experience was going to be kind of the same. And for most people that are awesome teachers that are good at conveying and communicating information, this is a, like a natural learning model. So it's it's something that when when someone's really good at teaching, this is pretty much what they're doing. We're just quantifying it and giving it a structure that people can then follow to make sure that they get that consistent quality experience rather than it just being a magical thing that happens sometimes and you're not really sure where the magic came from. So one thing I've been saying for a while is that the there's a huge overlap between teaching skills and if you're a dungeon master or a game master those skills because really what you're doing in that role is not only are you the leader of the table but you have to teach your players what their characters are sensing and what they're seeing smelling tasting all that stuff you're the one that's teaching them what the rules are there is this asymmetrical power dynamic between I'm the game master facilitating the experience and then how the players respond to it, at least initially. And the thing I really wanted to emphasize, and I, I don't want our listeners to lose, is the power of momentum learning systems is that it takes content and it makes it easy for the person to learn. So where I find a lot of game masters especially get stuck is they have all these cool ideas in their head and they want their players eyes to light up at how imaginative and creative they are. But the breakdown is in communicating it in a digestible way. So they get they things get way too convoluted and way too intricate because it keeps them as the game master engaged. But there can oftentimes be a disconnect. And I, I've seen it before where 
there was like a lightning in a bottle session is usually what we call it, where everything was just flowing right and everyone was super excited by the end. But again, like Stephanie said, it's that the power of having a model you can rely on is that it helps with the consistency of each experience. Yeah. And just to, to add to that, John, it's, you know, and I think this is very relevant to gaming. The whole idea is we're, we're encouraging a learner-centered approach instead of a content-centered approach. So it's not about the information, it's about the person receiving it. And I'll give you like a, a borrowing brilliance example. You know, it's one of my favorite ones was working with a real estate agent whose focus was on, it was transactional, it's selling houses, right? And we shifted that to helping people become successful homeowners. So when she shifted that to her center of gravity, it completely transformed the whole way she approached her business and the relationships because now she became an educator who's thinking way before someone actually purchases a home and the relationship way beyond that and all the things that go behind that. So if you've got a creating a situation where you're player centered, you know, what does that look like when your, your outcome is to make someone a successful gamer you know, a successful barbarian. <laughs> what is what does that mean when that becomes the focus as opposed to how do I create the story? And then it's the player's job to figure out how to integrate into that. And like Stephanie said, another power of momentum learning system is that there's a, a focus on quantitating it so that if you're saying, you know, your character wants to be a successful barbarian, what does that mean? the benefit of a TTRPG is often there are like hard numbers you can look at. So is it a successful barbarian? Well, how much damage are they doing per round? How much damage could they potentially be doing if you were guiding them to certain options? Or what possibilities are they limited by? Because you're not educating them to what all of the options are. You're just saying you can do whatever you want. It's like a Goldilocks balance of guiding them to what's going to lead to the most enjoyment they could experience without also forcing them down a, a, a railroad or a rabbit hole. So the player doesn't feel like they're really playing. They're just kind of sitting there while you're making choices for them. In that same vein, so there's the mechanics side of it, guiding the player to the mechanics, but then there's also helping the player unlock their creativity so that they can move beyond the mechanics of the game and fall in love with fall in love with their character. I mean, that's what happened with Zoe. It's her mechanics are secondary. I just love her story, you know? So it, and that came from the experience being created in a way that, that unlocked the potential of the imagination and the role playing and all of that stuff. So it's not just the, the mechanics unless that's what you want the game to be then that's what you need to guide your players to understand is the, the mechanics but if you want it to be more than that then it's helping them learn how to to build momentum towards the experience you're trying to gift them well and just to tease kind of a further part of the conversation you do need to start somewhere though so i think what happens also is with momentum learning systems there's a progression and if you try to get them to unlocking the magic of the story without creating a foundation they can build that story on, um, a lot of times the story falls flat, it becomes frustrating, and there is no magic. <laughs> so it's finding the, the rules that match your table, whether those are more involved rules or less involved rules, just 
finding what's going to be that Goldilocks like balance that will allow your players to unlock their creativity. Like we advocate here on these this podcast, these borrowing brilliance episodes, part of momentum learning systems, which actually today we're talking more about momentum teaching systems. We're talking a lot about the teaching side of it. The brilliance that evolved into this came from a couple of different places, but one of them was Jim Collins' Good to Great <laughs> book, um, which as Ken has said so eloquently, Good to Great is an awesome book to read if you are looking to be or if you are the person signing the front of paychecks. So if you're employing other people, if you're at the helm of a business, Good to Great by Jim Collins is an absolute must read. Um, otherwise, it may be interesting, um, but it's not necessarily something you need to go run out and read. But one of the the early parts of the book really and the foundation of all of it really is uh, a level five leader. So, Ken, do you want to describe what that is from the, the Jim Collins point of view? What he was looking at, um, just to give a little bit of context, the thing that was really cool about Jim Collins, he's a polymath. And he was looking at statistically with public companies where information was readily available what was the difference between two companies in the same industry where one was performing at 10 times the level over decades compared to the other one uh, and one of the things that came up was the idea of a level five leader and a level five leader not only were they very skilled and capable as a, as a leader leading from the front but it was fused with a purpose that was greater with themselves and like a high level of humility in the way they committed to that purpose. So he would contrast it against what he would call the genius with a thousand helpers, you know, where you have that, the face that's on the cover of every magazine and everyone else's job is just to hold them up, help them be brilliant. So, and those companies didn't succeed as well. The ones that did best were the ones where not only did the leader have that genius, that capability, but what they really did was they were artists at support at amplifying the skills of others and really always putting the greater purpose of and goals of the organization above their own. So that was that was level five. I pulled up the little pyramid here just to, to review it quickly because it does relate to think DMing and just being at the table. So Jim Collins, five levels of leadership. You've got at level one is a highly capable individual. So they make productive contributions through talent, knowledge, skills, and good work habits. So the DM or the player that's showing up, they've done their homework, they're ready with their part, but that's about it. They're just really good at at their role, but the, it doesn't extend interactively. And then level two would be a contributing team member. So contributes individual capabilities to the achievement of the group objective and works effectively with others in a group setting. Um, so again, someone that's, that's, you know, stepping up and they're, they're making their contribution, but it's not having an expansive impact on the people around them necessarily. And then uh, level three is a competent manager, organizes people and resources toward the effective and efficient pursuit of uh, predetermined objectives. So they keep things moving forwards. Level four is an effective leader, catalyzes commitment to and vigorous pursuit of a clear and compelling vision, stimulating higher performance standards. So that would be like the genius with the thousand helpers. So they, when they're there, 
everything is awesome and goes really smoothly. But the second they leave, it all falls apart because they haven't actually taught the people around them to to be able to do these skills themselves. They just they've positioned themselves as the person that everyone can come to and rely on. But but they're doing all the work They They have all the secret sauce held within them. So once they leave it, nobody knows what to do. And then level five leader, which is what we're kind of talking about today, uh, builds enduring greatness through a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. So there's there's multiple inspirations and brilliance borrowed in the five level leadership model that we came up with, um, the teacher training model. But uh, a lot of it stemmed from this. And then the other book that is very worth mentioning is A Slice of the Pie. Can remind me the author? I uh, Nick Cirillo. Nick Cirillo. Thank you. Yeah. So A Slice of the Pie. And that was a, a book about a pizza shop. Actually, I think he had a couple of them out in, was it the Chicago, Chicago. area? Yep. Yeah, yeah. I haven't read that book in a while. I feel like I'm I'm due for a reread of that one. But he had a really awesome training model for his employees that it, it was so much more than a restaurant. And he really took, you know, especially when you, if you're thinking waiters and waitresses, you've got a lot of young people that are coming into that industry and just looking for a, a first job to make some cash as they're getting ready to launch into their lives. And he really created something that set them up to be successful wherever their life took them, which is exactly what we're trying to do in all the businesses. It's, you know, Ken talks a lot about the employment superhighway where, you know, people can come and work for us for a little while and then they can get off and, you know, go do something else with their lives, but they're better for it. Whether they were with us for six months or six years or, you know, 60 years, it doesn't matter. They, they've improved somehow. And that's the same approach we always took to training in the martial arts. Even if a kid only took one class with us, we wanted to leave them with tools that was going to help them with stress management, with confidence, you know, just feel that they could kind of step into their power just a little bit more. So just before we move on to our model of five-level leadership with our teacher training in the martial arts school, you mentioned that we're mostly going to be talking about momentum teaching systems as opposed to momentum learning systems. Uh, can you just take a moment to clarify what the difference between those two is? So momentum learning is the content organization. So that is creating. So think of it this way. If you're the DM and you've truly applied that type of system, uh, someone else could come in and guest DM your game successfully. Like it's not completely around you. You've created a predictable and consistent delivery method in the way you do it. So like we literally had our cafe director teach ballet once. It was awesome. <laughs> and it was because, you know, there was a, a, a consistent and predictable organization of the content that allowed her to come in. So that's the momentum learning. And then momentum teaching is the skillful ability to transfer that information from one person to another. So that's the actual teaching and communication skill sets, what we would call the guide, the person that's, you know, so you've got the path that you're going to walk, the map, that's that's the content. But then you got the person that takes a group of people who are unfamiliar with it and successfully helps them navigate that path. That's momentum teaching. Um, and I did want to add in one more thing, just with the level five thing that's very important. 
These are stackable skills that you cannot shortcut. So if you're not a highly skilled individual, you cannot truly be an effective level five leader. It, it will collapse under its own weight. So you need to build all of these things. And that's going to be relevant to the conversation we're, we're going to have. There are no shortcuts. It's, they, all of these things must be built. The level five momentum teaching model begins at level one with the most important foundational skill. So again, like Ken just said, this isn't like you learn it and then you get to move on. This is the keep coming back to level one again and again, because it's the foundation of the pyramid. And the first level is listening, simply developing the skill to get out of your own head and your own preconceived notions and recognize and open your awareness up to what's going on around you. So Ken, can you talk a little bit about that first level, that listener level and what goes into it? I think that one thing that's uh, helpful is think the key to unlocking your ability to become an effective listener is curiosity. And, you know, a lot of times what happens is as a teacher, you, you have a lot of excitement over what you know and sharing what you know. But the challenge can be if all you're doing is sending that outwards in an outwards direction where you're just telling people what you know, you, you're really missing a very, very key dimension, which is how are they receiving the information that you're sharing. So you first have to be able to be curious about what their experience is. And, you know, I like the idea of um, mental alchemy, which is, you know, this old martial arts saying about if your cup is full, there's no room to put any more knowledge in. So you have to empty your cup. But I kind of like the idea of half empty your cup, make space, let new information come in, and then give it time to mix around so that you can see what new interesting things are created. So listening is about you share a little bit of information and then you stop and you pay attention. You know, what's happening with the learner? What's happening with the player? How are they receiving that? And give that a little bit of time for that feedback to mix with your experience before you decide what to do next. Yeah. So just to add to that, you know, one of the things that is like the foundation of borrowing brilliance is something Stephanie said about being a student of yourself. And Bob, who is a martial arts teacher that we both work with a lot. One of the things that he said that really struck me is it's difficult to be curious if you're afraid. So what can happen is public speaking is like the number one fear. It's more feared by a lot of people than death. So as a new teacher, what happens is you're just trying to remember what you're saying or as a new DM, you're just trying to remember your little note cards that step one is to become comfortable enough in the position that the fear isn't overriding your curiosity. So I almost wonder if like a step zero is by being a student of yourself, figuring out your indicators of when you're being afraid and that's overtaking your curiosity, which is making your ability to listen dampen. Uh, that's a really good point, John. And, and part of it is learning, you know, we're all on a spectrum of less skillful to more skillful. And fear is triggered by a feeling of less skillful, right? So if you, if you feel like you're not confident or competent in the situation, so you could be going right along and you're very curious and you're open and you're engaged and then you get challenged in a way where 
it pushes the boundaries of your your abilities right so it's like good to bookmark that and think okay i got to get more skillful in that situation and that will allow you to go back into the curiosity flow so yeah you're, it's a very good point and and bob is absolutely right you know if you it, you can get kicked out of curiosity when they asked the dalai lama are you enlightened he smiled and he said not at the moment you you're not there all the time and part of what my mentor would say would be spiritual weightlifting is when you flex, flex in and out of it. So it's good. It's good when you lose that curiosity. It gives you an opportunity to strengthen and grow. Interestingly, for, when you start your process, your own process of learning how to teach, how to DM, how to whatever, you know, where you're sharing information, when you start by listening, it lets you gain some knowledge and tools that are going to make you more confident than if you were to just try to jump in and do it. So our instructors in our martial arts school, we have a comprehensive instructor training program. They start with a workbook coming in and sitting down, watching classes of, you know, lower ranking classes, younger kids classes, and they simply listen they just sit there and observe and they're they're given specific things to watch for and kind of key foundational techniques to having an effective martial arts experience but instead of jumping in and talking right out of the gate or teaching right out of the gate first they try to step back and almost shadow as an instructor so because there is a flip that your brain has to go through. So you can be really, really knowledgeable in something. And then the second you have to try to explain it to somebody else, it, all of a sudden there's there's things you took for granted. There's there's steps that there's, you know, series of five steps that you've mushed into one step that you now have to like tease apart again if you're going to teach someone else to do it the way that you do it. So there's a lot of nuanced skill that comes in communication and teaching that we take for granted when we're experts at something. So what we're going to talk about today is how this process relates to becoming a DM. And one of the first things that anyone should do if they're starting to think about wanting to DM is to experience a game or even listen into a game. You know, if you're listening to an actual play or a live play podcast, you know, or critical role as you're listening, instead of being in the seat of the player, imagine yourself in the seat of the DM. Watch the DM, listen for the DM to go through the decision-making processes and think about what you would do if you were in that situation. Think about what rules you have to know to be able to adjudicate the situation that your players are currently in. So instead of going along for the ride, which is the privilege that we get as players, where we only really need to know half of the rules and half of the information, we need to put ourselves in that in the seat of the DM. But you can do that before you actually have to take on all the responsibilities of the DM. You can start to explore it kind of secondhand and practice the listening skill first before you jump into the hot seat and start making all the mistakes, which is part of learning. So, you know, give yourself the grace to make the mistakes too. Actually in, all right. So I love 
going line dancing and one of the line dancing teachers says that there are no mistakes they're just variations right it's just people doing their own little spin on stuff so if you give yourself permission to practice and play which is another foundational element of momentum learning system is that principle of practice and play that's going to help ease that fear and that concern of making a mistake or or doing something wrong or being in the spotlight, you know, that's going to help relax that so you can practice more listening, which is going to create the momentum that creates the positive experience for everyone where everybody learns and grows. I think especially for that curiosity place, whenever I've heard about like listening and being curious, there's a certain part and I, I've watched this with players over the years where they interpret it as a kind of passive thing, where it's just, I'm listening and I'm, I'm taking in the information while also not necessarily taking on a certain responsibility of understanding their own mechanics or working at it. And, and I think especially if you're looking for something to do because you need something a little more concrete, like just asking questions is a great way to activate that curiosity place. And taking responsibility for your own mechanics too. So it's totally okay to be like, I don't really understand how a dexterity save works. Can you explain that to me, DM? But also taking responsibility for the training of starting to remember what that actually means. So there have been plenty of times I've sat at a table where the players expect the DM to almost be like a computer and they just enter something and then they expect the DM to just tell them what to do. And there are actually a lot of DMs that encourage that kind of thing because they like having the control of saying how something resolves. They they get very uncomfortable when their players say, well, this rule on this page means this. So this is how this is going to resolve. Right. So just being curious by asking questions and also taking responsibility of doing maybe a little homework of knowing what your options are can go a long way. I think that starts to bridge into level two a little bit as well, where you're really starting to refine. That is level two. Level two is refinement. So you're going from a listener to a coach. So you're starting to learn how to recognize all of the, the nuances and the little details and figuring out how to nudge your players in the right direction because martial arts is near and dear to all our hearts and a big you know it's a, a huge part of our lives uh this would be you know in the dojo looking at a student's front kick or their front punch and recognizing what needs tweaking to be able to make that punch more effective. So it's, you know, they're rotating their fist at the wrong point or they're, you know, missing chambering the leg before before driving the foot forwards or it's a foot formation issue or there's something going on with their base leg or they're not turning their waist, you know, so you're picking up on all of the little details and you're able to recognize it and start to figure out how to translate that to another human being so in the dojo level two the refinement level is where we let the students uh or the the student instructors uh kind of step onto the mats rather than just sitting and watching they get to join in in class and they're not doing full-on teaching yet they're not like share they're not teaching students new moves or things like that they're they're holding pads they're running drills and helping the student practice while they're also practicing figuring out how to apply the listening skill that they had been working on and to be clear when we say listening we're not just talking 
with our ears. We're talking with our eyes as well. So listening is a, a full sensory experience. You're paying attention energetically, you know, so going to the, the DM table, you're sensing whether or not there's kind of that feeling of tension or there's a feeling of boredom or just some, whatever the vibe at the table is, you're learning to tune into that. So you're listening to what they say, you're watching their body language, and you're also just feeling with, you know, however you want to get with that. You're, you're picking up on the vibes that your your players, the people that are around you, your learners, your students are, are you know, laying down for you. Yeah, and um, I, I'll give a... Uh, another like little metaphor example. So we were just in a pottery store shop where they teach you how to make clay pots and stuff. And, you know, when you walk in there and, and you look at them, you know, see, see like maybe a simple clay cup. And in your mind, you're thinking, I could do that. How hard could that be? Right. <laughs> but then you actually try to do it and you realize that there's a lot more going on. And it's the process of step one, which is the listening to someone who has knowledge that you don't combine with your ability to actually practice and make mistakes, right? With my mentor would always say, make as many mistakes as you can, as fast as you can to reach your inner genius. So over time you start getting skillful, right? And it was from paying attention and getting feedback and then acting appropriately with that. So now you, you figured out how to make the clay cup and someone else comes in. And they're where you were, and they're now trying to figure out how to make the clay cup. And you know enough to be able to give them some hints and some suggestions that will shorten their journey. You're not ready to teach it. You couldn't take them through the process, but you can develop the very powerful and subtle art of support. And that's what refinement is about. You become skillful enough that you, you now know what you're looking at. And you can influence in a positive direction. So to me, from a gaming perspective, this is the player who starts playing in a way where they're making the other players gaming experience better. And they're amplifying the ability to move towards the overall objective. So they've figured some things out and they do just the right thing at the right time, not for themselves, but for the greater game. That's the refinement level. The right thing at the right time. That's that's such an important part of it, because I, I know yeah. we've all experienced coaches in many areas of our lives, whether it's at the D&D table or it's someone that we work with that keeps, you know, mansplaining or giving you advice when you don't ask for it or, you know, just kind of overdoing it where it's coming from a place of ego rather than a place of listening where it's like, oh, hey. I see that you're struggling with the same thing that I struggled with. And somebody told me this. someone smarter than me told me this, and it really helped me out. So maybe it'll help you too. You know, so it's coming from that place of, of sharing and, and again, listening to the other person's experience and then right thing, right time, not too much, not about you. It's about them. The bridge between knowledge and wisdom is timing and tension. So like someone that has knowledge, right, they don't necessarily convey it to you or share it with you at the right time or with just the right amount of resistance where it'll make you stretch, but it's not like overwhelming. So someone with wisdom, they give you just enough to, to let you 
engage to get traction and they do it at just the right time. So think yeah. trading silk, you know, if you pull too fast, it snaps, yeah. but if you pull too slow, it clumps. So- well, and to go back to that listening curiosity stage, how simple would it be, especially if, you know, like Stephanie, you just expressed frustration at getting advice when you're not asking for it. If you're in that coach practice, just asking permission, do you want some advice or you seem frustrated by the way that your character is operating? Would you like some advice or this option that I know that maybe you don't know? And then if they say no, you just shut up. (laughs) And if they say yes, well, now you know that it's the right time. A fun little anecdote. So John Acuff, who we've talked about on here, author of soundtracks and several other great books, he talks about how he was writing you know, a chapter of his new book and he was sharing it with his wife, who sounds like she should also write a book. She sounds amazing. Her name's Jenny. Um, but he, she, you know, he gave it to her to read. She's one of the first person that always reads his stuff. And she came to him and said, do you want compliments or critiques? Because she recognized that there is a point in the writing process where you need support and you just you just need to know that you're on the right track and that you're doing okay and that it feels good and then there's the there's also a time where you need to you know to really get into it and figure out you know how to start working it and you got to get into get 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 your hands dirty get into the nitty-gritty so but she she knew to ask him basically what phase are you at of this do you need compliments and support do you need to know that you're on the right track or do you want me to really you know dive in and be like you need to you know change this word and this sentence doesn't make sense you know what kind of support do you need in this moment Oh, the other thing just to be aware of someone, someone at the coaching level, they're probably very excited and passionate about what they've learned and the ability to convey that. So there's a little bit of a shadow side, which can be enthusiastic oversharing. So it can actually be hard for them to listen because they're their mind is very loud with all the things they can tell you, all the things that you could benefit from because they benefited from it. So it takes a little bit of time for them to settle into that. Brevity is an art form (laughs) that takes time to cultivate. I feel like there was something that came up recently. I don't remember if like if you said it, Ken, or if somebody else said it, but it was like, you're never smarter than when you're six months into a new hobby or something like that. Because <laughs> it's like Very you're true. at that point. Yeah, <laughs> you're at that point where like you've learned a lot and you're really excited about it, but you haven't gone deep enough to know what you don't know yet and to really understand how convoluted it is. But, uh, you know, someone that's newer to DMing, they've read everything and they're really excited to run the module and they've they've got it all memorized because they're so into it and they they have this perfect picture in their head of how they got to handle every situation but they haven't quite done it enough to realize what a mess it can become and how many challenges can come up especially when you're dealing with other people (laughs) speaking of the shadow side you just mentioned ken i also feel like this would be the stage where it can be extremely tempting to try to skip steps because you do know a lot of technical stuff. So I just did a series uh, of interviews with various GMs about world building. And that's one of the things where if you're a new GM, there's so much on world building and why the world building matters and 
one of the conclusions that consistently came up with people who have been doing this for a long time is the world building doesn't matter if you aren't creating an engaging player experience or if it's all about the excitement of these writing techniques that you're implementing of creating character arcs and political dynamics. None of that matters if your players aren't set up to enjoy it and if it's not digestible to them. Again, which is why momentum learning systems is such a brilliant overlay for becoming an awesome game master. Well, Grimton, Melinda and Ulrich are gone. We're in a new, unfamiliar land of Kolgafir. What's our first move? Polaris, I'm not too certain, but I did hear Fishbelly talking about something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With the warlord's half-sister in a meeting. Yeah, that's about the only lead we have so far. We haven't been here long. Might be worth checking out. Seems like a plan to me. Join us as our party explores an unforgiving region of the cusp and allies with new party members in Arc 3 of Advantage, a 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons audio drama focused on storytelling and character development in the Darkmoor Podcast Network. Find us in your podcast app. Level 3 is where you finally get to start talking <laughs> so level three uh in the dojo because it's the easiest analogy is when our instructors actually start to practice teaching new information to the students so they start teaching them the curriculum that they need to learn for their rank rather than just helping them drill what they already had they're imparting new sequences of moves. So level three is communication. Uh, this is where they go from a listener to a coach to now they are an instructor. They're actually instructing, but we deliberately don't call them a teacher yet because at this point they're just saying, so do this block, then do this punch, then do this kick. There's not a lot of detail. There's not a lot of adaptiveness to it. It's just, you know, I have the information. I give you the information. Um, so, Ken, do you want to go into that a little bit more? Yeah, I think the the big key with this part is structure is critical. So going back to our pottery example, you know, you had that person that was able to kind of give someone some advice and help them along. But when you go to this third level, you have the ability to take someone successfully from step zero to completion. And you, you may lack a little bit of the flexibility to deal with, you know, like unexpected situations, but the, you, you understand what needs to happen to start with clay and turn it into a finished product. And you, you become skillful at that process. So for us martial arts, it would be teach the technique based on the, the, the specific movements and principles that we all wanna start with when someone's learning that technique and that's it. And the most important thing at this level is when you get stuck, you reach out to someone who's a little farther along the teaching path to you to support you. And that's where you actually start learning the level four skills. But level three is all about becoming a skillful communicator and having the ability to transfer the knowledge, the information, the experience to someone who's less familiar with it. So at the table, you know, what you said, Ken, about structure, that's exactly, you know, that next level that someone who's, you know, our little baby DM that practiced 
shadowing at the table and then they started really studying the rules and becoming a coach for other players at the table in a respectful way respectful and appropriate way now when you get to level three is where you would actually jump in and start trying to do it yourself and if you're following the seven baby steps that john set up you're you're using a module you're you're going off of the rules as written so you understand why the rules are written that way before you start thinking you know better and trying to to do more or come up with your own stuff first you get the solid foundation the way it's traditionally done so as ken once told a boss as legend has it <laughs> tell me what the rules are so that when i break them you know it's on purpose you need to know what the rules are first so you're breaking them on purpose not because you think you had a good idea that sounded fun to circle back to the idea of becoming a student of yourself i know that we're looking at this through the lens of momentum teaching systems and you know for level one the listening being aware of how the the game master of your given TTRPG is delivering the information and kind of shadowing them. But there's also what you're doing for yourself as well. So, you know, for the coaching step, the refinement, I found that I was a lot more successful demonstrating a lot of it than I was trying to tell somebody else what to do. So rather than try to tell another player, you should take this spell or this option or this weapon or whatever in a D&D game, for me, how can I refine my understanding and my precision of the mechanics? And then when someone would say, no, I don't think that's how you build a healer or whatever, I just demonstrate with the mechanics. And then it would be like, see how you're alive? Apparently I built the healer correctly. So the level three, if you are talking about crossing over to being a game master, from my experience, to go back to the, the reliable structure that Ken was talking about, my most successful games within my first two years of dungeon mastering, whether it was as an amateur or a professional where people were actually paying me, were when I took like a dungeon and I didn't try to integrate their backstories or anything. It, it didn't matter what characters they were bringing to the table. I was mostly figuring out how to structure the adventure and the series of scenes. And then they would interact among themselves really. So maybe one time one of the players brings a barbarian and another plays a warlock. And because wherever they're at on the player journey, they might ex have a funny exchange or a conversation. But from what I had prepared, the players weren't really in the equation yet. I wasn't asking them ahead of time, what's your character's backstory? So that I could make sure I included a character from their past that had some big cathartic emotional reveal. It was there was some disconnected bad guy doing a bad thing. And these characters were coming in and exploring the dungeon and fighting the bad guy. But because of that, it really helped me develop a sense of pacing and knowing where I was giving too much information and too little to go back to that, you know, finding the right amount of information to deliver that things weren't dragging on, but also not clumping up and getting stuck. Because a lot of times that would happen too, where if as a DM, you don't give your players enough information, they don't know what to do. And so you just kind of sit there and stare at each other. In your opinion, Stephanie, would level three be the point where somebody would cross the threshold to sitting on the other side of the screen? 
that is a good question that I actually was looking to you towards since you do have experience with momentum teaching, but I'm sure we can all figure it out together. So I feel like it's somewhere between level two and level three. I think level three is definitely where you're running some sort of multi-session campaign. I could see maybe as the coach, you're doing like little one shots or something, but it's not, you're just practicing and playing. You're not, you know, and again, I, this was where I felt like it was fuzzy. I don't know if actually if Ken has any insight because in the dojo, the way it happens is you, you come in as a support instructor, basically. Again, you're holding pads, you're drilling stuff, but you're not, you're not up there leading the class or teaching new material. So at the table, there isn't really that sort of distinctive support role other than being a competent player that is helping guide other players at the table. Now, I have seen the idea of, I think it was in the Pathfinder core rule book. It said something about like swapping out who's being the DM so nobody burns out, um, which was an interesting idea. So maybe there's that kind of dynamic that you're starting to play with. But the coach, the refinement role is very much trying to kind of be in that support place, which is harder to do when there's only five people and one person is leading the story. Yeah. So I'm not sure if this comes back to the second spiral we're going to, we're going to get to, but the way I saw it going in is that level one as a leader, there's, there's the player side and the GM side. And if you're looking at it from the player side, you're listening differently to how the GM is delivering the information getting an idea of what rules in the game are relevant and which ones really aren't. <laughs> and then level two is refining your precision of the rules and your knowledge of the rules so that you can figure out how to use the rules to make the game most enjoyable. But then when I was thinking of level three initially, and, and Ken can elaborate or dispel any illusion I have about it, level three is when you start considering the team dynamics of if I'm a player and I'm not the GM, well, now this is where I'm building a character specifically that will synergize with someone else. I'm communicating with the other players. So when we build characters, we're not building individuals. We're, we're starting with the premise that we're building a team. Yeah, if I were to basically try to use, so Momentum Teaching Systems is designed to take someone who has up to this point been a learner into a master teacher, right? So if if I were taking someone who's never DM'd before and I were to create a manual, a curriculum to, to guide them through the levels, personally, I think, uh, and we're doing the thing where, where we share our ideas and then Ken's going to come in and like make it just blow our minds and make it all super clear. But, um, but I would say if it's, if it's a brand new thing and I am, as the integrator, I'm constructing a curriculum and there's little manuals that go along with it. Level one, just listen at the table. Here's some things to think about. Here's things to listen for. Level two, start to practice the mechanics in these specific ways. And then level three would be, all right, now, now take a module and apply it. Like figure out how to run Stormwreck Isle or Icepire Peak. With five level leadership, this concept is so, like momentum learning systems, it's so broad. I've always found the best games, the players are also leaders at the table. 
So where you're using the five levels, even if somebody else is the GM, to contribute to having a better experience. So as a level four player leader, like having the ability to adapt will contribute to the table. But if we're narrowing it to the GM, I mean, that that, of course, will make this more focused. But I just I don't want to <laughs> leave that where if I'm not the GM, I'm not the leader of the table. I don't want anyone right. to listen to this and have that be their takeaway. Yeah, so probably the easiest thing is like, okay, so take not DM to master DM, you know, talk about it in like, if you were to construct a momentum learning manual for DMing, you know, we can talk about it from that framework of like level one, two, three, four, but then the spiral going back around is how, so, all right, so you did it all. So now you, you can't just ignore level one. You have to keep taking yourself back through again and again because it's so easy to forget the different levels. And when you notice that something's not working the way it should, you work your way backwards, which we'll talk about. Um, but then the other level of the spiral is, yeah, when you get the opportunity, if you don't end up as a forever DM and you get out from behind the screen, you escape and you get to be a player again, you should be applying the same the same things. But uh, I think for the purposes of the, the first run through, it's easiest to keep it as like level one, you're kind of just shadowing and observing on a different level. Level two, you're really, really diving into the mechanics and understanding how it works. And then level three is where you like, you start DMing, you start taking control of the table and being the, you know, traditional idea of a leader at the table where you're the one everyone's looking to. Level three, you teach from the manual. You know, it's, it's, you may need to even reference it. And, you know, if you get stuck, you need to go back and look at it. You're not fully independent, but you're seeing the whole pathway of the learning loop, the learning experience. So, and a lot of times level two, you know, these are the ones that are like, Hey, I can help you finish filling out your character sheet, you know, or, you know, Oh, you need to use a D8. They're not a D6 or, hey, why don't you use this as your bonus action? They're just, they're instinctively adding. They're, they're, they're like little refinement moments that they become knowledgeable enough that they see those things and they can weave them in. They may even remind the DM who got distracted by seeing the bigger picture and they're like, hey, can he use his inspiration right now? You know, would that help? Or, you know, that kind of thing. Or doesn't he have a a skill or a feat or something. And, and it's almost like it almost gets woven in invisibly. So you got to pay attention. But these are the people that tend to be raising their hands, even subconsciously, that they're going to become effective teachers. Now, to bridge that into level three, you say, okay, you know, you, you've obviously developed an understanding and the you're incubating wisdom because you have this knowledge and you're starting to bridge over into how to use it effectively. So let's see what happens when we give you an entire learning loop and some clear structured directions on how to do it. So what's going to happen now, right? They're going to do it. And when they get stuck, they haven't done it enough yet. They haven't done enough circles through that you know, path to where they, they can adapt very well. But what they can do is they can understand the projection. So if I were to think of it from a player perspective, this is the player that when they're sitting as a player, they're aware pretty much the entire time of the, the arc of the campaign 
or how all of those players are moving towards an objective. They, they don't get lost in their own role or the role of someone else. They're, they're pretty clear all the way through. So when they're still at level two, they can kind of spot check certain things, but it might not be with a clear understanding of the overlying context. So that's, that would be the shift from two to three. Moving on to level four, this is where you really get into teaching, not just instructing someone, not just barking directions at them and expecting them to mimic what you're doing and memorize the moves or memorize the rules, but you're you're bringing in adaptability, which is the key skill for level four, is being able to adapt to the situation, being able to adapt to the energy at the table, being able to adapt skillfully to the curveball that the player throws you, being able to adapt to the fact that it's the end of May, kids are crawling out of their skin, and your five and six-year-old class is bouncing off the walls. So the plan that you thought was going to happen that day, the skills you thought you were going to teach these kids is not going to work. So we're not going to be working on one pinion today we're gonna be doing something that's more active this is an obstacle course day they need to move you know so it's that ability to adjust to the situation and to what the student needs that day so being responsive to their emotional needs or their physical needs and and being able to to pivot as needed if you think of it like you've internalized the first three skills to such a degree that they're kind of running almost like background applications constantly. You're constantly listening. You're constantly seeing opportunities to refine and you're constantly flexing through the structure so that you don't get lost. So even if like you abandon the manual, it's still in service to the greater purpose of the learning loop of the lesson or the campaign or whatever it is. So you're really talking at level four it's the illusion of abandoning structure, but it isn't. It's that you've you've learned to be flexible within the structure. You have solid banks to the river, but you're able to create a feeling of more organic flow that makes it a much more enjoyable ride for the the learners, for the players, because you're you're dancing with it. So you're just able to be more responsive. You know, and it's like, think like someone new learning to drive a car, you know, they're still trying to figure out brakes and steering and gas and all that kind of stuff, you know, but once you get skilled, now you're on those back mountain roads and you're just buzzing along. You're not thinking about those skills anymore. Those are background skills that allow you to truly enjoy the experience of driving. So level four for somebody who's interested in GMing, I feel like this would be the stage where they know the rules so well and they know how the system translates from what the book says to how their players receive it and the real world time it takes to resolve certain things at the table that this is where now that you know the rules you can start making adjustments to tune them to what your ideal experience is. So a classic D&D example is, should potions be a bonus action instead of an action? And for a lot of tables, I actually discourage them from doing that at first because 
you don't have a good enough understanding of how that impacts your choices with your action to really understand all of the ways that can clump up the system later down the line. It's one of those things that might sound like a good idea, but you haven't experienced the action economy well enough to be able to make that little tweak. Whereas somebody who's at level four and knows their players and knows what their players want out of the game, both mechanically and narratively, they may be more comfortable making that little adjustment. And overall, we just had this with Jackson from TrueSight RPGs, where Ian forwarded him some of the homebrew rules that we use. And his immediate response was a little bit of that overwhelm of like, there's a lot going here. I can see how some of this could be interesting. In my experience, this would bog down the game. But that was the disconnect is it's not your table that you're used to GMing. So this is the culmination of dozens of micro adjustments we've made over time to the point that our players are resolving it as second nature. Because that's the other real thing about the listening step is the players are teaching you sometimes even more than you're teaching them. So if you know they're getting overwhelmed by the amount of boxes on the Pathfinder sheet, it doesn't matter how elegant other people think that system is. It's too much for our table. So I feel like that's really the jump from level three to level four is you've listened to your players enough that the game is tuned to emphasize the parts that excite them and downplay the parts that don't. Yeah, and I bet you that at level th- a level three teacher, the rules can uh, generate some resistance that has a little bit of a disruption to the flow of the game. Whereas as you get more skillful, you're able to feather the break in the gas a little bit, you know? So like those rules are there, but it doesn't really slow things down. And level four, you know, level four, when at the end, everybody's reflecting on it and they're thinking that was awesome. And then they have specific moments that stand out, but in the end, they're left with a feeling of having been on a ride that was undisrupted from beginning to end. You know, and it doesn't always happen. You can be really, really good and just have it not work out that way. It's again, are you enlightened? Not at the moment, you know, (laughs) so there's that part of it. But but yeah, I think that would be the difference, you know, at level three, when some kind of challenge to the structure comes up, you may have to slow down or even get stuck. There may be some tension figuring out how to resolve it, whereas level four, you're better at navigating. So you just kind of roll with it because you've seen it all. You know, you've done it enough. You've got enough reps that you're less surprised and you're able to even catch things in advance and smooth them out before they become a problem. The final level, level five of momentum teaching is integration. So this is the evolution from a teacher to a mentor. And Ken, I'm going to let you take this one away because this one's this one's deep. This one's mastery. Yeah. So think when at level five, the learner is seeing the story of their life reflected in the lesson that you're teaching. So if, if you're DMing a game and the players, as they're going through the game, they're seeing relevance to relationships that they have in their life or challenges that they're facing or opportunities they want to leverage. The role they're playing is superimposed over other roles they play in other elements of their life. So it becomes multidimensional. And you know the thing that's important with this is it's, it is not by accident. It is intentional. And 
it's generally speaking, the best ones that I've seen do it, it's pretty subtle in the moment. But then afterwards, you're having all of these like realizations, you know, and sometimes you may not even have conscious realizations, but it, what it's what keeps you coming back because that experience is having a ripple effect that is, is impacting other areas of your life in sometimes very unexpected ways. So I'm going to brag on John for a second because he is, he is an amazing martial arts instruct, instructor, but I think he is absolutely level five as DM. What he's created in Gearus is a situation of complete integration where he set up a framework of a world and we've all filled in the gaps and created, you know, it's, a, it's been an integrative collaborative experience of creating that world together. The rules are adjusted based on the flow of the game. So when something's not working, when something's not serving us anymore, John will make an adjustment as needed so that it creates the best experience for everyone involved. He's also willing to say no when it's not something that that's appropriate for the, the full table. And when we're actually sitting down and playing the game, there are times that John will just be leaning back in his chair or he will literally give up, get up and leave the room because he's not needed. It's, it's actually stepping towards, you know, in the martial arts we talk about. So fifth degree in our style is mastery. Um, sixth degree is all about leave no trace. So, and there's an element of that in the way that the game is run because John just gives just the right amount of touches at just the right time to keep things moving forwards. But he's created so much space in an integrated supported way that we run for the most part, the first 75% of our sessions ourselves almost. He's just like nudging us along the path, but the, the role playing and the interaction and the exploration is so player led that we're all almost collaboratively DMing, GMing the game. And then, you know, John really steps into that role when you get to combat where you do need someone that's kind of guiding everything. You know, he's he's more of a character because he's playing a monster and the mechanics of it or whatever we're fighting in that moment. You know, but for the most part, he's integrated into the fabric of the game almost as an equal player to the point where, like, we made him bring one of his characters into Gears because we wanted him to play with us because he's done such a good job of seamlessly leaving no trace, you know, as the GM, we're like, no, we want you to come play with us. So there's the okay. humility part. That's the humility part of Jim Collins model, the level five leader. Cause the, if you're in that leadership role and someone starts to outshine you and you become uncomfortable with that, you'll close off that space, you know, and at that level five position, you're creating space for everyone to step in and out of so that they can test and experiment. And you've become so skilled that you can just keep everything moving and adapting around it. And your sense of identity is not threatened by what anyone else does. You're, you're freed from that. Your commitment is to the game. And as players, we all trust that. So we know if something gets confused or if we go off the rails or something he's gonna catch us you know if we if we start floundering or if just i don't know if we just lose ourselves 
like and lose the storyline and confuse ourselves you know he's gonna be right there to to pick it up take all of the disparate pieces that we've collected you know created and figure out how to weave them together into something that integrates all of our our separate ideas sounds so, like yeah. dragon mind to me yeah exactly <laughs> there's the whole idea behind dragon mind is because we we all feel like we're better people through playing the game. And for us, John was kind of the one that that led and introduced us to it. Well, that's so nice. I like getting compliments. <laughs> so thank you both. So there is one part of it I do want to kind of emphasize because, you know, like you've mentioned a few times now, Ken, these things build on each other and the bridge between knowledge and wisdom is timing and tension. And what I found is that because of the nature of this game and there is a recognition in a large part of the community that this is the real value of the game is by stepping into a role of a character in this fantasy imaginary space that you can now start to overlay that and learn about navigating relationships in your own life and your own challenges. There is that shadow side again of people who intellectually understand that but then bringing their inappropriate troubles to the table or their wounds that they're navigating, but then putting a disproportionate responsibility on everyone else for their own emotional well-being. It's that recognition that we would love to take away lessons of D&D &D and, and use them in our real lives, but there's an inappropriate implementation where it's like, you know, we're playing D&D, &D, we're not therapists. Even if some of us are therapists, that's not the role that we're taking in this practice and play space. Yeah. And it's really, you know, you just got to go all the way back to listening. For for some people, they struggle a little bit with the awareness of the their relationship with boundaries within themselves and with others. So, you know, so you're back to the oversharing things. So they're processing in real time, probably some kind of maybe trauma. Um, and this can be a pretty healthy way to do it, but they have to superimpose their process with the impact that process is having on the other players and the reason that you've all agreed for being there. And sometimes there's just not enough agreement in what that reason is or a clear understanding. So, because I mean, you could have a game where it's like, we're a bunch of therapists and we are going to live out our trauma through this game. And we're going to bring boxes of tissues and pillows to punch. And that's why we're here. So if you've been clear that that's the reason and somewhere to come in and say, I'm just here to play D&D, they're going to be feel, feel very out of place. Right. So it's just making sure that you lay the context. But then, you know, I think the challenge is for a lot of people, they've never really been in environments where they've been taught how to be aware of how they're impacting things outside of themselves. They just, you know, they lack that kind of level of an awareness. And, and again, not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just either we've been taught this thing, we've intuitively learned it, or in most cases, we just haven't. We don't know what we don't know. So, you know, so I think that this is where a level five GM is going to have to really, really get sensitive to that listening and refinement so that they can provide guide rails 
that will teach them as firmly or gently as necessary <laughs> what you know what the rules are for the game that's being played and and how to stay within those rules there's a shadow side to stepping into a leadership role that everybody knows which is the ego you know the the person that that wants all the glory and all the attention uh, but there's another shadow side of trying to take on you know there's that book by Jocko Wilnick called Extreme Ownership you know and he ended up writing another one that we've talked about on Borrowing Brilliance before of the dichotomy of leadership because that that idea of extreme ownership can lead to trying to be a superhero and I watched Ken do that early on when he was an instructor just trying to be everything to everyone not feeling like you could say no without letting people down. So I could see where D DMs could end up in the position of wanting to have an impactful game that gives people a safe space and makes a positive difference in their lives. And then accidentally, because they're trying to be everything to everyone and they're trying to be that superhero and that super friend, you know, ending up in a role where they're almost taking on a, a therapist role. So being a level five leader means that you use all of the, the tools at your disposal, the resources you have around you. It means you you set up other people to also become leaders. So they're not only relying on you. So the, a lot of the comparison companies in Good to Great had, you know, they had these amazing successful periods with these awesome leaders like Lee Iacocca is one that comes up a lot in leadership. He did amazing stuff for Chrysler. And then without him, the, the company really like fell off a cliff. It's It struggled uh, because he had been so much. He'd been the genius with a thousand helpers that when he was no longer there, the, the, the bottom fell out. So as much as we want to be there for people, especially when you're talking about a table of five friends that are all getting together to release the stress of the rest of their life, you know, weekly or biweekly, whatever, you know, you're, you're showing up to, to feel better. That doesn't mean you have to take on, especially as the leader at the table, as the DM at the table, that doesn't mean you need to take on everybody else's garbage. You know, that should be left at the door, not in the leader's lap. Self-advocacy is a healthy thing, you know, and they could be very willing to raise their voice about what their needs are and what their boundaries are. Um, it isn't always necessarily contextually appropriate, though. And that can be a very nuanced thing that can be difficult. It's funny. It's like go to watch a kid's movie with a bunch of kids and they're all talking. They, they won't shut up through the whole thing, you know, <laughs> so in a movie theater. So you've got all of these kids and they're all kind of raucous and loud. But then if you go to see some adult oriented drama and people start talking, that's not going to be appropriate. You know, so it's, they're both movie theaters and they're both movies, but the context of it is different. So sometimes it's about clearly defining the context. It's like, what do you call it, Steph? Uh, cruise manners? Yeah, cruise manners. <laughs> so my mom took Leo on a cruise, but she didn't want him eating like a Neanderthal. So she's training him to cruise manners, like eating politely when you're in the nice restaurant on the cruise. Yeah. So that's, that's a specific context that he can understand. And he has to, whether he agrees or not, 
adjust his behavior accordingly. You know, and and I think that that can be the challenge. You know, you've got someone who's like, I need this. You have to focus on the context and the environment when they're making it about the person or about themselves. So, and that can be a very challenging thing. And you need a strong sense of the context so that you can clearly define it. You know, this is a movie where you cannot talk. And I understand you'll you'll enjoy it better if you can talk and you want to talk. However, the context is this. And if that doesn't work for you, I'm sorry, but you're not invited to this movie. You know, no sometimes has to be a complete sentence. I've just found, this is just a personal aside, that the games I enjoy most um, with this medium are ones that have a very clear vision and aesthetic uh, with mechanics that support that. So, for example, if, let's say, I wanted to run D&D, but it's like the Wild West with magic and cowboys and trains and horseback riding, that's a very specific vision. So, if someone wants to play a really goofy character, but everybody else is on board for something that's a little more sincere and a little more serious, where there's a little bit more drama. And even if it's cheesy, we're going to we're going to stay true to it. But one other person is trying to undercut whatever that definition of serious is by bringing, you know, Jim Bob the blob. And they're just trying to make a joke out of it but also it's not quite on board with whatever everybody else wants you know that's that's the example of the ttrpg thing yes you may want a light-hearted game this specific environment may not be appropriate for it then so it's it's not saying you're self-advocating so everybody else has to adjust the the beauty of ttrpgs is that they're flexible enough that you can kind of mold the experience to what the players are looking for and and the GM is also a player. So a little bit what they're looking for too, but also sometimes, like you said, Ken, no is a complete sentence. It's this game, this story isn't a good fit for what you seem to want out of it. And that doesn't mean we never want to play with you again. It just means sometimes you have to create those very clear contexts and then allow the players to decide for themselves if it's going to be a right fit. And I mean, that's that's how Gears started uh, the initial. T- I still remember writing the initial text of I have this vision for this game I want to run. And that was one of the things I asked, which is if you want to do a joke or you if I give you a quest and you say no, please don't come to this game because I'm not interested in being that reactive. I want to prep something that's well thought out for all of you. But in order for me to do that, there are certain agreements and certain freedoms as players you're going to have to give up in order for me to be able to fulfill the delivery of the experience I want to gift you. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. I think a good level five practitioner, um, their no has a feeling of fierce compassion to it. It's not this kind of indifferent, just too bad, suck it up type thing. It's like, I understand, you know, my, my heart, agrees my heart wants you here it's just not going to work you know and no it's not fair or no you're it's there's there should be a place for you and there isn't there there just isn't you know it's like that kind of thing or there has to something has to change and unfortunately all that can change in this circumstance is you so and if you're not willing to do that i mean it's funny i just did a high altitude spartan race and 
it's it kind of sucked because I was at a disadvantage. I'm not acclimated to being at 9,000 feet. So I was slower. I got tired easier. And people who trained at altitude or had three weeks to go acclimate were going to do better than me. And it was part of a national point series. If I want to do well in nationals, have to participate in that race. Is that fair to me? I don't I don't know. It's just, it's the circumstances. So all that could change was my approach to either participating or not, and then preparing as best I could in less than ideal circumstances. So, you know, so, and I, I think that's the, you know, that's the challenge. I think, especially with something like gaming, where it can be so intimate and, and personal and impactful. So you want it to work, you know, everyone wants it to work but it's not necessarily going to work the way everyone as individuals wants it to work because we've, we, we, yes, we have sovereignty and personal freedom, personal expression and all of that. But when that mixes with other people who are doing the same, like Steph says, there, there has to be some level of agreement and, you know, you're trying to navigate that, you know? And, and I think the good level five leaders, they have that flexibility, but they also are, firm in their commitment to the overall purpose and objectives that you're trying to work towards and they keep their ego out of it, you know, but they're also, they're clear, they're clear and they're skillful and everybody won't be happy all the time. It's unfortunate, but that's, that's life. Would a good way to put it be that they're very clear on the purpose and they're not looking to sacrifice the individual people out of that they want to recognize them as people as humans but they're also allowing those individuals to make choices and those choices may end up excluding themselves out of it would that be a good way to summarize it or i i think so yeah and you know and the other thing that's interesting is you're saying that a good leader is going to give them the space to test it and they're also going to help them navigate the consequence of their experimenting and testing. So maybe they they overstep and they're open to feedback. Like they're they're willing to listen and refine, right? And you say, "Hey, what you did made everybody uncomfortable." And, you know, and I would like to make sure that that doesn't happen again. Are you willing to work with me to adjust that? And if they have a temper tantrum and they're like, "blah blah blah blah, whatever," then you're back to your no. But if they say, oh my God, I didn't realize, you know, I, I was so in my own head, I lost the, my view of the impact I was having on the other players. Please don't let that happen again, right? So now that's someone you can work with. And you know what? They're probably going to be better in life <laughs> as, a, as a result of that. So the good leader doesn't cut that off. They open an invitation, but they're also clear on the fact that not everybody's going to be willing, you know, they may not be in a place in their life, you know, maybe there's too much trauma or they've had some bad experiences or there's a lack of trust. Who knows? You know, we're all coming from such complexity that's led us to where we are as we're all sitting here right now. So, but if you're, if, if you feel like you can at least open up the opportunity for them to learn from it and be someone who better integrates with the overall whole of the game, I think that's a healthy approach. And the ability to have that conversation comes from having listened, like built up the emotional bank account 
so they know that you they can trust you so that when you go to them with a concern like that they know they're not being attacked they know they're not being singled out you have shown them that it's a Stephen Covey seven habits of highly successful people seek first to understand then be understood if you've taken the time to listen and to work on the refinement and the the ability to coach and be a strong support and then you've you know developed your own ability to communicate effectively, you know, to now match the listening skill that you've developed, you know, and you're being adaptable and you've created trust through demonstrating that adaptability. Now, you know, that's going to create the framework that's going to allow you to safely go to that person. You know, it's funny. I just flashed on this, uh, you know, every once in a while I'd be asked to do like a women's self-defense course and, one of the things I'd ask is, are they all comfortable with a man leading the course? Because I mean, if they've had some kind of trauma or they feel that a man can't truly understand what they, what it's like to be a woman in that situation, I want to be respectful of that. And I could come across saying, well, you know, I'm not that kind of man. I've never hurt anyone. I have the skill. I have the knowledge. It's better to learn it from me, blah, 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 blah. None of that is relevant. What's relevant in that situation is I'm there for them. You know, I'm kind of the servant leader role. So I just want to be clear on whether or not, because what's the point of coming in if the whole time they're going to be afraid or it's going to be triggering some kind of background trauma that limits the learning experience for them. So I ask the question and I also don't take it personally, you know, whatever the answer is, it's just, it is what it is. So our focus today was on momentum teaching and just to give followers of borrowing brilliance uh, a little bit of an idea of what's to come um we are going to do the next borrowing brilliance podcast as the three of us together again to talk more about momentum learning and the idea of spiraling up so this like we said in the beginning this was more about who this was about developing yourself as an individual and kind of a, a curriculum that you can take yourself through to grow as a DM. Momentum learning and the spirals that are created in that are going to speak strongly to the seven baby steps that John and I have talked about that that John developed. Um, and then we are going to revisit those again later on. So we have kind of a, a plan moving forwards for this next little chunk. Um, but we do want to take a moment at the end just to touch on that idea of spiralings. Like we tried so hard to emphasize in the beginning, uh, this is not like you pass the level and you never have to go back to it again. This is something that you revisit each level again and again. And Ken, can you, can you say some words on that? The best way to think of it, there's kind of two, two parts to it. And the first part is you don't graduate to the top and you're kind of done. And what you're really using is, is this is a diagnostic tool that lets you flex down as is appropriate. So let's say that you're delivering a level four experience and it's fluid and it's adaptable. And then there's a breakdown. Right. So something goes wrong where it's not, you're not connecting anymore. You need to drop down and look at your ability to communicate the structure effectively. Maybe you went too far away from the structure. And if there's still a breakdown, you drop down again and say, all right, am I missing some details? Is there some level of refinement, the ounce that can move the thousand pounds to get this back on track? And if you're still stuck, you got to shut up and listen. You go all the way back down and 
then you work your way back up. You say, what, what are they telling me? You could literally have a class where it's like, something is off. What is off? You know, students tell me, what do you think is off? And you just, you go back into discovery. Then you climb back up the ladder. You know, you work your way back up the spiral of refining. You, you reinvest in the structure until you get back to that flow you know, that fluid nature, and then maybe there's integration on top of it. So, you know, so the idea is, you know, you're, you don't sit in one level and try harder to make that work. You're, you're constantly aware of whether or not you you're in flow or if there's resistance. And then that becomes a tool that lets you kind of almost have an in-flight checklist to move up and down. So, but then the other part of it is, so you get to level five, you're at the top and you're feeling really good and everybody's having this incredible experience, right? And they're, you know, you're the guru and they're, you know, I mean, like you did a really nice job of praising John, you know, because John's doing it, right? So now John has an opportunity if he's thinking in terms of a spiral above the peak he's standing on in the clouds is potentially another mountain to climb. And now he has to become even more skillful at listening. So the top of one spiral is the bottom of the next level of the spiral, because really this whole thing is, it's a process. It's not, it, it's not a checklist or something that you graduate from an end. It's like mastery. Mastery is not something you get. It's, it's a way you live. It's always dynamic and it's never ending to, to my experience anyway. I mean, it's, it feels like the more I play with all of these things, the, the less I really know, you know, there's just so much more depth and width to it so yeah so those would be the two ways that i would be thinking about it as you're playing with the principles i think masters are really good at saying i don't know but instead of that being an abdication of responsibility it's i don't know but won't it be interesting to find out together well and that's why at the beginning i didn't want to lose the player side of things i found that especially DMs either moving from level three or le to level four, or they've started kind of touching on that level five ability, but then they're having trouble with the consistency. It's because they're not playing enough. So they're GMing a lot, but they're not in the player seat experiencing and being able to empathize with what it's like to be a player, empathizing with what it's like when I don't have unlimited decision-making on my turn in combat, I have an action, bonus action, move. I can't just make things up. And I'm not the, and I'm, I'm giving away some of the control and responsibility to somebody else and trying to build the trust that they're going to make decisions that are going to help me enjoy the game the most. So I think that that's why the whole spiraling, like, you know, you the, the end of a level five is the beginning of a new level one. Why I find that ring so true is I delight in being the player in somebody else's game because it really helps me listen in a way that I really can't if I'm just a GM. Because I can pay attention to the signals my players are giving me, but I can't truly know what it's like being a player if I'm not constantly practicing and reminding myself of what it's like to be on the other side of the screen. What was that show, that boss show? The one where the bosses would like undercover boss, undercover boss. Oh, I couldn't yeah, remember yeah. it. Yeah. The whole reason that that show worked is because you had a whole bunch of people that had been at the top in the leadership role and they hadn't 
gotten down in the trenches and they were missing what was happening on the ground floor. And, and so what you're saying is really important. And I know it also can be very hard. The whole joke behind the forever DM. Some people are the DM because no one else is willing to do it. So that advice is going to be really hard to follow because they don't have a group that, that they can just go play with. Well, it relates to one of the seven baby steps, which I think was step seven, but it also, I, I was thinking about it from the five level leadership model that really is level five is when you're not only delivering a, a disruptionless experience like Ken was describing for level four, but you're able to foster a culture where other people can trust the table enough that they're not afraid to cross the threshold into becoming a DM themselves, where they they raise their hand and say, I think I want to give this a try. And you're not trying to quash them by, well, it's really a lot more complicated than you think it is. And trying to stoke the fear that's going to prevent them from being curious. As a level five leader, I feel like part of the magic of it is you're instilling the curiosity to your players enough so that they're excited to cross the threshold, mistakes, warts and all. And you're doing it in a way that has enough structure that it feels like something that they can mimic and step into and that they're they're not going to have to figure it all out themselves. So they've got if they've got a momentum learning system backing the way that they set things up, you know, or even like your reference doc, you created an amazing reference doc for Gearis and Ian copy pasted a whole lot of that because it mimicked what he, you know, he, he liked the way that it felt to be a player in that game. So he, he took that and made a couple of changes to make it a little bit his own, but really in the end, you know, that's your Gearis system just white labeled as Corsara. So you inspired him to create something because of the structure that you put behind it. And because you didn't hide that you, there was transparency. You showed us what you were doing and that created space for inspiration and creativity. Thank you everyone for listening to today's episode. Our theme song, The Lounge, is brought to you by Fezlian Studios, and you can check out more of their awesome work at fezlianstudios.com. This podcast is also a proud member of the Darkmoor Podcast Network. To discover more excellent TTRPG content like this, head to darkmoorpodcasts.com. Last but not least, to support this podcast, make sure to drop a five-star review in your app of choice. It's a little thing that goes a long way. Have an awesome day and an awesome time at the table. Bye-bye now. I think the core of Dungeons & Dragons is puzzle and encounter design. I'll draw from favorite movies, video games, books, anything to create a one-of-a-kind play experience. When you start with a solid framework, all you need is to grab your best friends and hilarity ensues naturally. I'm Sully, Dungeon Master and host of the podcast How Friends Roll, a 5th edition actual play podcast of micro-campaigns featuring a rotating cast of characters. Come join our table. How Friends Roll is available wherever you get your podcasts.